Hello, Shadwell here. You know, I was talking to my friend Isted the other day, and he tells me that he's bought Bonnie Tyler's car on eBay. I said, oh, that's good. What is it? He said, it's a Mitsubishi Eclipse. How is it, I asked. He said, it's not bad, but every now and then it falls apart. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, and like I said in the last episode, that this edition of Gareth Jones on Speed will be the nearest episode I publish to St. David's Day. And as a Welsh-speaking Welshman, I am duty-bound to do what we call pethau bychan, which means the little things, which is a demand on Welsh people that we do a little bit of Welsh something every day, particularly around St. David's Day. And as I can't get together with a bunch of fellow Welsh people for St. David's Day, I'm going to do it virtually on this programme by connecting with a Welsh motoring journalist for the first time on this programme. Welcome, Alex Grant. Alex, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on board. You're in Wales at the moment, aren't you, Cardiff? Where are you from originally? Cardiff, born and bred. Work has taken me away and then life has brought me back. So back on my home turf. So bringing a little bit of Cardiff to the podcast. We're covering the nation between us because I'm a North Walian originally. Although my dad was born in Pontland Frith near Newport, Hmm. although he was brought up in Yorkshire, which is one of the reasons why I don't sound particularly Welsh. My dad had a Yorkshire accent and although I was brought up in North Wales, he had a Yorkshire accent and I think that was an influence on the way I sound. So we're covering the whole nation between us, North and South. Now, let's talk about the state of the car industry in Wales. Car manufacturing in Wales. The bulk of that over the years has happened nearer to you than it has to me, how healthy is car manufacturing in South Wales at the moment? It's not had a particularly good autumn, all things considered. I mean, we lost the bridge end plant for Ford, which was until last September or so, was producing petrol engines for Jaguar Land Rover and Ford. And that's just closed down. And then recently we've lost British Vault as well, which was initially going to be setting up a massive battery factory in Bridgend, producing units for plug-in hybrid and electric cars to the tune of 30-odd gigawatt hours a year. And then not long after that, we lost Ineos. So the revived kind of boxy utility vehicle, which has moved to the border with France and Germany alongside last remaining dregs of the smart production that's going to be taking place there. So it's going to be a Daimler factory out there. Yeah, the lack of the Ineos factory being established in South Wales is a bit of a blow. Originally, I think they were going to use part of the Ford plant. Then they were talking about building an entirely new plant, either within the territory where Ford were or adjacent to it. Mm. But instead, they've bought or acquired, it's a complicated deal, I think, what was the smart plant near the German border in France. That plant was part owned by Mercedes-Benz and of course Ineos have now become partners in the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team. So I'm wondering if there's some sort of Freakonomics going on there rather than cash changing hands this sort of exchange shares. Yeah, they're under contract to produce some of the last smarts coming out of that factory as well so it's quite a deep partnership. Although it's interesting that they're getting their petrol engines from BMW but I guess being in middle of Europe like that is, I guess I didn't mention the B word this early on, but it probably helps with some of the supply chain headaches over the next few years. Whether those materialise or not, it's probably a safer bet, I would have said, where you are. There's a lot of 
cynicism about the Grenadier, or as I call it, the Land Rover Pretender, because mm. that's what it is. The idea that it's not going to be built in Britain may, in some small way, damage sales because Land Rover and therefore the Ineos Grenadier wants to be perceived as a British institution. Mm. And the idea that they're not going to build it in Britain ain't going to help, is it? The idea of a Welsh Land Rover is perfect because wasn't the Land Rover originally conceived in North Wales? Yeah, Red Wolf Bay, yeah. It was drawn as an outline in the sand on Red Wolf Bay. So yeah, although there's elements of it that go back to the old Willis Jeeps and so on that go back before that. So if you trace it back far enough, it goes further away. But the Land Rover itself, yeah, was conceived in North Wales. Although the thing is, you could argue that Hambach, which I can only ever read as Hambach being Wales. Of course, yeah. It's closer to the UK than where the actual Defender is being built, which is being built over in Slovakia. So. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's arguably more British than the Defender. <laughs> <laughs> I could argue that. <laughs> so the loss of Bridge End, I mean, Bridge End produced hundreds of thousands of engines for Ford and Jaguar over the years. And it closed down, I think, in September 2020, finally. Mm. And there must be a huge resource of skilled labour there, people who are experts in the field of car manufacturing, that Ineos could well have tapped into. Mm. I don't know why they didn't do that. Surely the Welsh government would have made them a deal that they couldn't refuse because they'd be desperate to fill that manufacturing void, surely. Yeah, although I would have said that actually probably the British fault one, from a long-term perspective, is probably the bigger one to have lost out of the two. The desperate thing with the UK is to bring in as much of that forward technology and the kind of the future-proof stuff as possible. So, yeah, I mean, Ineos is a loss, but the loss of British fault, which is what, something like 2.6 billion or something of investment going into the area and thousands and thousands of jobs, I mean, that really is a very important facility, which is a shame to have lost down here, really. You're absolutely right, Alex. The Grenadier is going to be a niche model. It's not going to sell in huge numbers. But pretty much every car that will go on the road from 2030 has to have a battery on board. Mm. And so the idea that Wales has a battery plant would be far more valid, wouldn't it, than just building a niche off-roader? And it brings that R&D expertise. They're having an attached R&D centre there. So it's that kind of not just having the actual factory floor. It's bringing lots of engineering talent into South Wales and, and creating a hub, I guess, around that as well. Yeah. And Nissan up in Sunderland have got a real network of innovation. People like Hyperdrive who've appeared around the battery manufacturing up there and they're taking the cells and incorporating them into things like modular battery pack systems that you can put into things like airport tractors and refuse collection vehicles and street sweepers and things like that, where they're taking kind of automotive grade technology and integrating it into other things. I mean, if you've got a big battery factory like that down here, you've then got a reason for specialist technology companies like that to come down here and set up on the doorstep. So I really do think that's something that it's a real shame to have lost that. As much as it would have been great to have seen Ineos bring the Grenadier here, it would have been a nice step on from, you know, okay, fine, we're losing Ford, the engine plant, but you're stepping into a new era with this kind of battery technology. It's a continuation, isn't it? We've lost that. A modernisation, yeah, adapting. The industry has to adapt. Let's talk about a Welsh success. And that means Aston Martin, because in, when was it, 2018, I went to St. Athen, not that far from where you are right now, to see the launch of Aston Martin's manufacturing plant in Wales. And I remember being told while I was there that every Aston Martin that was now going to be built in Wales 
under the bonnet, instead of having a union flag saying hand-built in England by Aston Martin, it will have the Vrijgoch, the Welsh flag, with the notation hand-built in Wales by Aston Martin. I mean, that's just fantastic if you're Welsh, isn't it? And also really good in terms of exporting Welsh identity throughout the world. The car's going to be a hit, isn't it? Yeah, even through COVID last year, I mean, Aston like most manufacturers, probably would have preferred to have forgotten all about 2020. But, I mean, within that, the DBX is back up to full-scale production. They've linked up with Mercedes for hybrid technology, and that seems to me to be a car that would be ripe for that kind of conversion. And it's a key model. They're not producing a small-volume vehicle there. They're producing a large vehicle that's going to be sold all over the world, and that presumably is a good platform to integrate other technologies into as well. So, I mean, that's really good news long-term for St. Athens. Even if it's not like producing a Fiesta or something there, it's rooting a very important model within Wales, which I think is very impressive. And as you say, taking that Welsh identity and exporting it around the world. The DBX, Mm. it will be, or perhaps arguably already is, Aston Martin's volume model. They're going to sell more of that than any other Aston Martin. So that's key. But they're also talking about St. Athen being... The electrification Mm. centre, I don't know. I remember that the Rapide, with a capital E at the end of it, the electric Mm. version of the Rapide, was built in Graz in Austria, the Magna plant, I think it was. Yeah. But there was talk of that being brought to St. Athen. Do you know if that's actually happened? I don't know if it's been confirmed yet, but again, it's that valuable future-looking expertise being brought into Wales is an important step and great news if that's happening here. Yeah, it's happening in North Wales as well. I'm particularly proud to say, as someone from Flintshire, Mm. that the Toyota engine plant Mm. at Deeside, just down the road from where I was brought up, just a matter of a few miles or something, they shifted over to hybrid engine Mm. production a few years ago now. And I'm just looking at the figures here. They produce 1,300 engines a day? Yeah, again, I mean, first hybrid engine factory outside Japan. So, yeah. again, what a great thing to have in Wales. And they're producing it for key models, things like the CHR, which have been a very, very popular car, and actually selling stuff back to Japan. So, what a wonderful expertise to have in Wales. And I think that's the sort of thing that needs to be encouraged to happen here, because these are things where you put the roots in place now, and you're getting ahead of the curve on that. There have been some disappointments in car manufacturing in Wales, and there have been some sort of stumbles as well. I'm talking about TVR. For instance, Ebu Vale, the Heads of the Valleys. There's a region there called the Tech Zone or the Tech Valley or something where they're trying to attract high-tech industries. And this idea that the TVR Griffith, Mm -hmm. good Welsh name, isn't it, Griffith? (laughs) I thought about it. Yeah, it's perfectly appropriate, isn't it? That that will finally get built in Wales. It's been on-off, on-off for a few years now. But I think there was a deal struck... Last month or the end of last year, with a company from Henfan, Jones, no relation to mine, but a company called Jones Brothers, who are going to be the contractor for finally making this facility that TVR have acquired workable. They're putting in a new roof and all sorts of facilities. And it does actually look like TVR are coming to Wales. The groundwork supposedly started in February in the factory, didn't they? Yeah. But they still have a massive amount of funds they need to raise to get production off the ground, essentially. They were asking for millions and millions of pounds in bonds last year. My concern always with TVR is that my 20-year-old self would probably hate myself for saying this, but the interesting thing with TVR, I mean, TVR has always been kind of loud, brash, in-your-face performance, hasn't it? And as nice as it is to see that they're coming back with that kind of 5-litre V8 manual rear-wheel drive sports car thing, I mean, there are rumours that they're working on hybrid and electric 
wouldn't it have been great to have seen that they could have taken that character? I guess you would have had to have done it with hybrid at first to kind of retain some of that noise. But the fact that they're launching with something that feels, I don't know, not quite in keeping with where the industry's going at the moment. Yeah, it's generation old, isn't it? Yeah. Ferraris are moving from V12s to V8s and from V8s to V6s. Mm. Everyone is downscaling. It does seem a bit anachronistic, but I think this is a function of the delay. Mm. Because when it was announced somewhat five years ago now, yeah. the idea that we were shifting over to pure electric cars in 2030 was a fantasy then. And now that it's become tangible. But I'm guessing TVR, they're not stuffed with cash in their pockets. Mm. And it costs an awful lot more to develop a hybrid system than it does to develop a good old-fashioned internal combustion engine. So I think they're just trying to get it over the line, aren't they? They're going to the core TVR value. And hopefully that will turn enough money around for them to be able to invest in a more modern car. I think as well, they'll probably have to perform some sort of technology partnership with somebody a bit like Aston Martin's done with Mercedes to kind of get some of that, take advantage of that research and development already being done or quite a long way along the line and tailor it to what they need. So yeah, I think it'd be great to see them get off the ground, especially as it's up in Ebu Vale, which is an area that needs to become a hub in this way. Part of the problem that they'll have up there is that that whole automotive hub was linked into the Circuit of Wales. Ah, yes. Which we will talk about in the second half of the programme. We'll save that thought. We'll come to motor racing in Wales. There are cars who've been born in Wales without being manufactured here. Yeah, the interesting thing about Wales is it's become almost like this massive proving ground for a lot of manufacturers. A lot of engineers will tell you that if you want to make a car really drive very well, then you'll have to spend at least some time putting down some black lines in Wales. And it's got the kind of surfaces, the weather conditions, the kind of the road conditions that really put a car through its paces. So yeah, it's a place that chassis engineers love to come to help sort out their cars. So yeah, a lot of cars, whether they're actually built here or not, the things that make them sell well are a product of Welsh roads, which is nice to think. I do exactly that myself. Pretty much every time I get a car to review here on Gareth Jones on Speed, I go home to Wales Mm. to drive it. You know, I live in Hackney in London and you can't really test a car on the roads of Hackney, but you get into Mid Wales, you get to North Wales, you get to Brecon, South Wales. These are just some of the greatest roads in Britain, bar Scotland, for driving. You're absolutely right there. But okay, overall then, to sum up, how healthy would you say car manufacturing in Wales is. I'm just thinking of a comparison here. If we take our neighbours, England is clearly thriving. There is car manufacturing going on all over England. Scotland doesn't seem to have anything apart from one firm, I think, called Raptor, who build a sort of a Caterham 7 at the moment. And there hasn't been large-scale car manufacturing in Scotland since the Linwood plant closed and the proclaimers wrote a song about it northern ireland and the republic of ireland there's no real car manufacturing going on at all there although they do have commercial vehicle manufacturing is it right bus who build the route master the new london bus that's built in ballymena isn't it and so if you compare wales with ireland and scotland we're doing quite well we've got tvr we've got aston martin and another firm which you'll hear about in the program in a moment we didn't get the ineos factory we didn't get the battery plant so on balance Is Wales doing better than Scotland and the island of Ireland, or are we doing worse? 
Well, I would say that the devolved nations of the UK have got a bit of a task keeping up with the industry as it is in England, where you've got hubs of knowledge based around places like Nissan in Northumberland and around motorsport hubs such as Silverstone. And you've got everything from your kind of small scale manufacturers such as Morgan all the way up to, as I say, Nissan up in the north. But I mean, if you look at where Wales is on that scale, we've still got some strong players in, as you say, Aston Martin, despite missing out on British Vault and on Ineos as well. We've got the beginnings, hopefully, of TBR gets off the ground of starting to foster some of these hubs of knowledge in Wales. So I'd say at the moment we're probably slightly behind Northern Ireland where you've got a specialism in HGVs in Wright Bus which is doing some quite interesting things with hydrogen and electric at the moment. But I guess if we're looking at other devolved nations we are ahead of Scotland on that front. So we've got the makings of an industry here and our input into vehicle development is an important one albeit on a small scale. We didn't mention one manufacturer in Wales who don't actually build cars they build something fairly close and that's jcb in wrexham yeah who have a transmission plant there who supply transmission for all their vehicles i believe from wrexham they laid off a bunch of people but then recently have just advertised for 400 new jobs so that's a bit of a success in north wales yeah and if you want specialisms then you've got to look to mid wales and river simple who we'll be covering in the next part of this episode of gareth jones on speed Hello, Shadwell here again. Oh, I'll wait a minute for these fellas to stop singing. I have a feeling this could take a long time, so I'll tell you the story I was going to tell you. People worry about car security in Wales. And you know what? The alarm went off in my car the other day. Eventually, when the police got it back, they found it in Rill. Smelling of hairspray and full of acoustic guitars. I blame Mike Peters. You may remember five years ago on Gareth Jones on Speed, I made two episodes of the podcast about a Welsh startup, a firm called River Simple, who are based in Llandrindod Wells in Powys. And for the last five years, they've been developing a hydrogen fuel cell car called Rasa. Things have moved on for the company recently. They've had some fairly major announcements. And so I got in touch with the company's founder, Hugo Spowers, and asked him how things are developing for River Simple. I must say it's very exciting at the moment, Gareth. The world is finally moving in our direction, I think. We've been fighting against a headwind for years. We're a 20-year-old pre-revenue startup. And people have sort of wondered why we're doing what we're doing. But now everybody wants what we've got. And so many of the car companies really haven't done the work that they need to do to get ready. But we've got all that behind us and we've been very well positioned. I have noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed too, that the 
talk of a hydrogen economy or hydrogen as a system of distributing energy for motor vehicles and for domestic use has suddenly, for want of a better pun, accelerated over the last sort of 12 months. Everyone's talking about hydrogen now. What's changed? Well, I think it all started with the Australians were the first ones to produce and publish a national hydrogen strategy. Since then, a number of countries have done so in Europe and Germany and so on. We have yet to do so. We're promised it in Q2 this year, but it has been pushed back a little bit. I mean, obviously, they've got other things on their plate at the moment, but I think that it is well recognised is a critical part of a sustainable energy system. And hosting COP26, we've got to get our house in order. So yes, it's all happening. I mean, the last three months have seen an acceleration. Let's talk about the Welsh side of River Simple. Have you had good support from the Welsh government in the last 12 months over what has been a difficult time for the entire motor industry? We have. We are deep in conversation with them and actually with the Wales office in Westminster about our production plans. I mean, this is the really exciting bit. We're aiming at being in production in early 24. And they've been very supportive of that. Of course, COVID, there have been some measures that have been enormously helpful. Initially, it was looking pretty grim for us because all the COVID support packages were based on revenue. And our revenue is zero as a pre-revenue company. So we weren't going to get any support at all. But then we did have a considerable amount of support from the Future Fund with a convertible loan funding round in July last year. And we've had three people on furlough in the initial period, but very few of us have furloughed. The problem is that we've been building one car at a time. And with social distancing, you can't get a lot of people onto one car. Having said that, we've now got three cars in parallel in build. So production rate is ramping up. But we can't start our trial beta test of cars, which was meant to have started by now in Monmouthshire, because COVID constraints. I mean, we're hoping that late April, we are going to start the trial properly. But Monmouthshire County Council have also been incredibly supportive through this time and accepting the fact that there are delays and so on. We've got the filling station in Abergavenny, which they supported and gave us the site right in the centre of town. And we use it for all our test work. There's lots of testing going on, but we can't have the cars with customers. And the other thing is two of the cars are going into a programme in Milford Haven, which is an innovate supported project to integrate onshore and offshore renewables and heat and transport. Coming back to your point about hydrogen as an energy vector for the built environment, you can't look at transport independently of energy. We've got to look at the whole system. And then hydrogen becomes the key vector to go alongside electricity. Interesting you mentioned Milford Haven there. For people outside of Wales who may not know, that's a new energy transfer port that they're building there. Is that right? Tell us what you know about that. It has been our major port of entry for natural gas and things like that. So so it is historically a fossil fuel entry point, but they are reconceiving themselves as an energy hub. And of course, they've got a major pipeline for gas. So if they can be generators of hydrogen, they've got the infrastructure already in place. I think, as you were saying last week, town gas in the Victorian era was over 50 percent hydrogen. We only converted over from that in the 1960s when our gas grid became natural gas. And so ultimately, I think it's a no brainer that we're going to go back to the gas grid carrying hydrogen. I hate to say it, but it's back to the future, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's talk about how the company has evolved now over the last 12 months. When we first met, you were very much a research and development firm. You were piloting or trying to get the concept of the car right and the very first prototype working. You've now got three, which you're going to deliver to a council who are going to run how many cars for how long? Well, we are starting a beta test and we will build up to 20 cars gradually over a period of nine months. And they're going to go to a variety of customers. The council have been very supportive and they will certainly take one car and they will be the first customer in the trial. We're calling it a beta test because all tech companies nowadays beta test their technology with real people. Uh, The auto industry doesn't. They never let anyone near a car until it's ready for production. And then everything, of course, is cast in stone. You can't change anything. We want to work with our customers. The car that comes to market in 2024 to the layperson will look the same, but there won't be a single component that's actually shared. Even the surfaces will be mildly different because we will do much more extensive wind tunnel testing than we were able to do with the prototype. So this batch of 20 cars is a production run, but it's not quite representative of the car that will come out in three years time. And also, not only are we working with the customers about the cars and what they like about the car or don't like, what's missing or they would like improved, but also we are refining the customer proposition, the service, the way we provide the car to the customer, the way that we support the car in the field because we're never selling the car we're only ever selling a service contract mobility as a service and the car stays in our hands for the life of the car which we expect to be at least 20 years through multiple different customers and so the only transaction they have is when they pay a monthly direct debit which has a fixed price bit but also a mileage rate they don't pay for hydrogen when they fill up for instance if the bill comes to us and this means that we have an interest in the car lasting as long as possible and as being as cheap to run as possible, which is exactly the opposite of what happens if you sell the car. You want the car to have as short a life as possible and high running costs because the spare parts are so profitable. When I first spoke to you about this, I'd not heard this idea before. And yet in the last few months, Renault have announced that they are changing from being a car manufacturing company to, like you, a mobility provider Mm. where these models these ideas of yours which you've been so passionate about and i've been supportive of for the last few years are actually being adopted by huge concerns now does that make your job more difficult as a tiny little company trying to do the same thing or does it make you feel that your ideas have been validated and that the future is good for river simple which I think the latter, definitely. I think the more people talk about the things that we're talking about, the less radical they sound. Mm. And the easier it is to persuade people to support it, whether it's public sector support for our manufacturing facility or it's investors or whatever. So the more people that hear about it from other quarters, the more credible it is when we talk about it. And from a competition point of view, we're not even concerned because as a concept, it infects every aspect of our business. Mm. You build a completely different car because of this. You need a completely different distribution system. You have a different culture in the company, different manufacturing facilities because the vehicle's made in a different way. And it's very, very difficult for existing car companies to make all those changes. It's much harder to change a business model even than changing the technology. And so whilst I applaud what they're doing, I absolutely respect just how difficult it is for them to do it. And they can't just start making cars in a different way because they've got 
manufacturing capacity to make steel cars. Yeah. And they have to keep going with that. So we feel that we don't need to be first in the market with anything, with hydrogen or with the mobility service. We want to come to market doing it better rather than first. Interesting. You're a small company and that makes you agile and adaptable and you have no history, you have no traditions, you have no labor force that you have to keep on board. You can do what's right for the customer as opposed to what's right for the company, I suppose. Absolutely. We have no exit barriers, no constraints. We can design a car to suit hydrogen from first principles rather than try and squeeze hydrogen into the sort of cars we've been making for the last hundred years. And also we can design a business model suited to the 21st century where climate change and energy efficiency and peak resources are the key constraints on business and all commercial activity and it's much easier to design a business model for that than to try and tweak a business model that was designed to do something fundamentally different. And so there are very few advantages to being a startup, I can assure you, Gary. (laughs) The really big one that should not be underestimated is having a clean sheet of paper. It really does create opportunities that don't exist for mature incumbents. And it's no criticism of them at all. What they're doing is fantastic. And there's some brilliant people in that industry doing the work. And the engineering they're doing is fantastic. But it is very, very constrained by having to incrementally change what they're already doing rather than start on the clean sheet of paper. And it makes the barriers to hydrogen technology much, much bigger. Let's talk about the news I read about River Simple in the last month that you've signed a memorandum of understanding with electronics or tech giant Siemens. Yes. Now, why? What's the agreement? What are you going to do? What's going to happen? Well, it's very, very significant for us. I must say it's fantastic. It's very wide ranging and they're committing to working with us and supporting us on all the things that we need to do to get to production. So there's a lot of software in the vehicle development. They have got fantastic suite of software products. There's also all the design of the manufacturing facility, digital twins, optimizing the design and layout of the plant. Again, we're starting from a clean sheet of paper. It'll be a completely different sort of car factory. And they're also very interested in the emerging circular economy world and how that impacts the supply chain because we don't want to buy products off our suppliers like fuel cells we want to pay for the electricity of the fuel cell but the fuel cell stays in the possession of the fuel cell company Mm -hmm. and we're working on a blockchain model to provide the trust throughout the supply chain that everybody's getting paid the right amount for the runtime of the fuel cell. We're even going to be paying for the efficiency with which the fuel cell converts our hydrogen into electricity. And the thousands of calculations each month for each car, and then thousands of cars, could not be done and authenticated without the blockchain. And all these things are a huge change in the way that the commercial world works. And quite frankly, most big businesses are doing their level best to manage and minimize the rate of change. Change is not comfortable. Siemens is genuinely looking forwards and embracing this radically different future, and they want to understand it. And that attitude is really unusual in big corporate. So we're blessed to really be working with them, I think. You mentioned building or designing a factory to build River Simple's cars. Um, Presumably... Mm. 
You'll make a version of the Rasa, a two-seater, two-door. I know you've got design plans for a four-door and also a very small, light commercial vehicle, a Rasa van, if you like. Yeah. Is this going to happen? Yeah. Where's the factory going to be and when? We're deep in the factory design at the moment, and we want it to be a, an absolute exemplar of environmental efficiency, if you like. It's going to be in mid-Wales. We've been looking at sites and working with the Welsh Government on where we feel very strongly that the 220 jobs that that factory will create directly are much more valuable and needed in mid-Wales than they are on the south coast. I know that jobs are needed on the south coast, but really in mid-Wales, we have a dearth of employment opportunities. And if you're 18 and you leave school with decent A-levels, I'm afraid you leave the area. And it has a knock-on impact on everybody if you don't have young people and schools are closing and so on. So we feel quite committed to at least the first plant being in mid-Wales. But also because of that, as if we didn't need another reason to be energy efficient, the grid, of course, is very weak. And so you can't put in an energy intensive manufacturing facility in mid Wales. So it is yet another reason to really focus on the environmental performance of the plant. And that in itself is very, very exciting. So we're talking to architects, Siemens are helping with brainstorming factory layouts, working with composites companies, the companies making the machinery for for volume production of composites to minimise the energy intensity of building the carbon fibre structures which is the most energy intensive bit that we have to do in the plant. All sorts of things going on like that. And also on-site renewables and generation of hydrogen, maybe integrating with local biodigesters to create hydrogen from biomethane. Because non-electrolytic sources of hydrogen, green hydrogen, green hydrogen that doesn't need green electricity is really, really something we think we should focus on. Hugo, I am thrilled. I didn't realise that the factory itself would be in Wales. I had a strong sense that it could be somewhere in Europe or elsewhere in the UK, but the idea that you will finally get to build in reasonable volume this innovative car in a little country which has got a proud heritage. We haven't built cars in Wales, I think, on a big scale since, on even the big scale, since Gilburn, a conversation we've had a long time ago. And I'm thrilled that you will be bringing a car for the 21st century and beyond to Wales. must make you proud. 5,000 cars a year is the capacity of the plant. And the second car that we would build is that light delivery van. Now, that was an exploding market even before COVID, but online shopping obviously has accelerated dramatically since then. So it's certainly something that is desperately needed. And it would use the same powertrain as the Raza, and we can build it in the same plant initially. But we're aiming at a second plant two years later, and that would be dedicated just to the van and the first plant just to the Raza. And each of these plants, 5,000 vehicles, 220 jobs, but they can be dotted around. They won't all be in one place. And it creates distributed jobs. And you talk about the four-door car, we will do that. But that's really driven by when a sufficient nationwide infrastructure develops. Ah. These cars initially all focused on local areas people who operate in a 25-mile radius. Yeah. And there's over 3 million cars in the UK that don't go outside that. So we'll be focusing on pockets of developing the hydrogen proposition and working with the infrastructure people to put in filling stations in specific locations to support this rollout. Hugo, that is... A whole other conversation that I very much look forward to having with you, the nature of the hydrogen infrastructure and how it's going to roll out. But for now, thank you for making Wales vital in the car industry again. And thank you for your time for talking to me again on Gareth Jones on Speed. Thank you very much, Gareth. Lovely to speak to you. Gareth 
couldn't possibly do an episode of Gareth Jones on Speed dedicated to Wales without doing some more singing. So here's a song specially written for the programme in the style of one of Wales's greatest exports, Super Furry Animals, or in our case, for copyright reasons, Supra Fiery Cannonballs. Here's a song about electric cars. It's called No Noise At All.
practice It's silver stone couldn't be worse No hysteria No drama The cursed silence of the curse No noise at all This is a particularly Welsh edition of Gareth Jones on Speed to celebrate St. David's Day. We've talked about car manufacturing historically and currently in Wales, but I thought we should talk about motorsport in Wales. Okay, drivers born in Wales. We've had some drivers over the years. The most famous, of course, is... Tom Price, who's from near me in North Wales, who died in a dreadful accident at Kyle Army in 1977. There are other racing drivers you may or may not heard of. Chap I discovered recently, Shane Lister Summers, who was a Formula One driver in the 1960s, the very early first year of the 1960s or second year. He raced in a few races but unfortunately died at Brands Hatch in the rain when he crashed into a concrete wall at the pit tunnel entrance. There was Jack Lewis, who raced Cooper Climax in the early 1960s. Alan Rees, again, another Welsh driver who died. Born in Newport, he raced in sort of 1966, 67 in F2 and then some F1 races, but no F1 championship races and in the three races he took part in I think two of them were in an F2 car so he ain't going to win but he was one of the people who went on to form March did you know that that, yeah Yeah, we can claim a quarter of March as being Welsh (laughs) more recently Andy Mayrick, although technically born in Chester, Mm. is of Welsh parentage. He raced at the Le Mans 24 Hours in LMP1 a couple of times and then drove the Delta Wing in the American Le Mans series. Very cool. Dominic Evans, British GT Championships in the teens, 2013, I think was the last time he raced. Jan Mardenborough. Yeah. He's Cardiff boy, isn't he? Yeah, he's not Cardiff born, but he grew up in Cardiff and I think he still lives here. In fact, this is a real welcome to Cardiff type thing, but he posted a picture of his car having been broken into last year. (laughs) Do you know what? My sense of time at the moment is all over the place. It could have been the year before, but it was definitely in Cardiff that it had been broken into. So whether he was visiting his parents and got a kind of welcome home gift or not, I don't know. Yeah, he's from Wales as well. And also, I mean, there's co-drivers as well. You've got Nicky Grist, who sat next to Colin McRae, of course. So I idolised the two of them back in the 1990s. It's still printed on the side of my remote control Subaru is Nicky Grist's name. So him and Phil Mills as well. Uh, Phil Mills? I'd forgotten about Phil Mills. Yeah, Phil Mills was the co-driver for Petter Solberg when he won the World Rally Championship. Was that 2003? You are, I think it might be 2003. I went for a drive in mid-Wales with Petter Solberg mm. and I got to sit in Phil Mills' seat alongside Petter Solberg. And of course, there was already a Dreigorch, a Welsh dragon, on the side of the car with the name Phil Mills. So I got a bit of masking tape, covered Phil Mills' name and wrote my name, Gareth Jones, because the flag was already there. And actually, Petter Solberg is fiercely a Welsh supporter because he won his World Championship yeah. in Wales. Was it Margan Park, the last round? Yeah, I was there. I've got a picture of him still on the roof of his Subaru. We got up at 4am and 
got absolutely drenched. By the time we got to Margan Park, we were soaked in mud up to our knees, and there was a two-wheel drive Sierra Cosworth stuck in the car park, having done donuts. It was getting pulled out by the tractor. Somebody thought they were a bit of a hero, basically, I think. Mud, the Lombard RAC rally, October, November, rain, Wales, it's all synonymous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, back in those days, you could get really quite close to the action as well. The first year that I went, well, it would have been 2001, 2002, maybe? No, probably 2000, actually. I think that was the year that Carlos Sainz had a crash and injured a couple of the spectators. But you could really get quite close to it. Or you'd be trudging alongside the track and all of a sudden a horn would blast and you'd be kind of jumping up into the trees and then this kind of rally car would come past and shower you with stones. It was amazing atmosphere to pick up on. And of course, being part Ferme in Cardiff, it could get right up close to all of the uh, championship drivers. It was just fantastic. Carlos Sainz's crash, not only did it injure spectators, it also put one of the WRC camera crew in hospital as well. A mate of mine who later worked with me on A1 Grand Prix, Dave Stamford, was in hospital for three months with a broken back. Mm. And Carlos Sainz went to visit him. He was the first person to go and visit him, which is very cool. Yeah. Yeah, rallying is dangerous. All motorsport is dangerous. Mm. It says on the ticket, it used to say motorsport can be dangerous. These days it says motorsport is dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. We'll come back to rallying in a minute because I think we'll finish this programme talking about rallying because that's where Wales is having its greatest success in motorsport at the moment. But I should carry on through my list of racing drivers. Seb Morris, a great name. If you're going to be a racing driver, you've got to be called Sebastian. There are more Sebastian racing drivers than any other, I think. Seb Morris emerged in, I think, Formula 3, I remember first seeing him. And he was on his way to Formula 1 but ended up in GT cars. And he actually won the British GT Championship in 2017 with my mate Rick Parfit Jr. on the team with him. But he never made it into Formula One. Good-looking lad. He's the nearest we've had to a Welsh F1 driver, I think, for a few years. And Matt Parry, he's a Cardiff lad. Do you know Matt Parry? I don't know, no. He was touted as being a potential F1 driver. He won the McLaren Autosport BRDC award in 2013, but never got higher than GP3. He never got into what was GP2. If he had, he might have stood a chance. He was very highly regarded. Others I can think of, there's a chap called Lloyd Reed, who was in Indie Lights in America, And he was actually born in Wales, but his family emigrated to the States. So I think he's a naturalised American who raced in Indy Lights. And another Lloyd, Alex Lloyd, who was in A1GP. He was actually from Manchester, but his parents are Welsh. He raced in Indy in America. So we'll count him as well. Yeah, yeah. And yet another Welshman called Lloyd. How well, Lloyd. He was in Formula 3 in about... mm, 2007 or thereabouts and he was doing incredibly well he was in a very poorly funded team it was actually his father's team sponsored by Codwen Forestry and he didn't quite have the chassis and the engine underneath him to compete with the other guys in Formula 3 but he never made it out of F3 again Welsh drivers we seem to get up to Formula 3 or perhaps GT but never make it beyond that there have been Irish drivers there have been Northern Irish drivers and very successful Scottish drivers in the upper formula but Welsh we haven't really done it since Tom Price in the 70s and I think the reason for that is Welsh tracks we don't have functioning top level 
Welsh racetracks at the moment? Because that would make it possible for Welsh drivers to develop, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I'm sceptical as to whether we ever will. Sadly, I think Circuit of Wales is one of these ideas where, I mean, technically it still could go ahead. Oh, really? I thought it was absolutely dead. No, apparently there's a live planning application in with Blaenau Gwent Council, but... I don't see that going anywhere. Let's just fill in a bit of background for those who don't know, because as Welsh people, we will have followed the development of the Circuit of Wales quite closely. But this was a project to build a brand new racetrack on a greenfield site. Is that right? Or was it a brownfield site? It's a bit of both, isn't it? Yeah. When was this? About, what, five years ago now it first emerged? It's the best part of a decade. It must be 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. And this is at the heads of the valleys, so the north side of South Wales, if you like. And it was a very ambitious project, as I remember. They'd actually signed a contract mm. to run the British MotoGP Grand Prix there, hadn't they? Yeah. Despite not actually having built the circuit. Yeah, it got a long way through, and then all of a sudden the wheels kind of seemed to fall off, and there's nothing they could do could get the wheels to bolt back on again afterwards. It's one of those things. It got hit by all the resistance it could possibly get hit by when the project first came out. You know, everyone from all the kind of the usual people who had environmental concerns about it all the way through to the association of motor circuit owners where they were saying this could very easily be white elephant kind of project if it's in the wrong place and to me i mean i look at that and i think if i was going to be trying to get up to abu vale the roads from cardiff let's assume you're attracting a big welsh crowd if you're coming from cardiff and newport you're going up near the Bringlas tunnels which are a massive traffic bottleneck anyway there aren't any particularly good roads to get to it from the south or from the southwest of England either. I mean, if you've been to any track days at you know large events at Donington Park or pre-Silverstone having all the bypasses in place, if you've got a big circuit like that without the proper road infrastructure, it's horrendous. I mean, that's probably a small concern as part of the wider project, but to me, I just look at it and think there's no way that's ever going to work. Ultimately, with that project, the idea was never just to have a circuit there, but to do a bit like if you look at Silverstone, where... Silverstone is your kind of anchor point for lots and lots of really interesting innovation to take place around the circuit. So you put a circuit in in the middle and I mean, yes, the circuit, it's quite hard to make a business case for a race circuit, but you can then bring in talent from all over the place to that area. You need an awful lot of not only massive events taking place there. But you need a lot of manufacturers using it for testing. You need small club level events, hospitality type events. I mean, Silverstone, the big wing complex at Silverstone hosts conferences throughout the year. A lot of, I'd imagine, the income of a place like Silverstone is charging companies a lot of money to host conferences and stuff there rather than actually having cars out on track. So you need to be able to attract all of that there. And it's quite a difficult thing to make a business case for it. And I think that's ultimately what killed it. The last government have backed the business park at Rita Blair. But if you look at it, it's obvious what the game plan was for that area is to attract innovation into it, because that's what the government backed. They backed this massive business park, automotive technology park, they're calling it, up at Rita Blau. And even that's taking a while to get off the ground. But they've obviously looked at the track and said, it's hard to make a business case for a track. It has to be a honeypot, like you say. You know, part of the activity is racing, but drawing specialists Mm. to support that it's the same with manufacturing as well you know if you've got a manufacturing plant it's all the suppliers who are really employing the greatest number of people aren't they delivering stuff to that plant and there are still something like 150 car component suppliers Mm. in wales doing stuff but not the kind of level that they were when ford were manufacturing engines and transmissions in bridge end that's taking a shock we're an interesting country for the way that our automotive industry works here i mean i have to do quite a lot on the kind of classic car side And it's interesting, you'll find these little estates around in the middle of nowhere, and it's kind of single units of old munitions factories and 
bunkers and barns and all the rest of it. And you'll find somebody there is UK's leading specialist in building a specific kind of bolt for a classic Ferrari or they're hand making panels for old Aston Martins or something. And people will come from all over the world to get them to build those parts. But then there'll be a little cluster of businesses where they'll know somebody two or three units down who's really good at painting with a certain kind of material or they're really good at something. And you find these weird little clusters of things and scaling that sort of model up and putting it into a business park in fact, somewhere like Ebu Vale where the track almost is the seed for this growing around it. That's what you lose out on. Again, as we were saying earlier with the battery plant stuff is that that's what you lose out on a little bit by not having the seed of that there. And apparently, I mean, the automotive business park up there is taking a little while to get off the ground, which is a shame, but you kind of need that start point, I think, to pull people in. So maybe TBR will be the start point. Let's hope so. It's interesting what you say there, because it's almost in some ways reflects Welsh character and how we export Welsh culture as well as Welsh technology, Welsh culture around the world. You know, you go anywhere in the world and people know Irish culture, people know Scots and English culture. That's exported really well. But the Welsh don't really export our culture the same sort of way. You'll find Irish bars, you'll find Scottish traditions all over the world. But Welsh culture, less so. Maybe we're just less confident or argumentative i don't know i had a very strange experience a few years ago where i went out to seoul with kia we were doing a trip out there to look at some of the sustainable manufacturing they were putting in place and on the last night we were there we went to a bar in seoul it was a british themed bar admittedly but above the bar so i was queuing up to pay for whatever drink was one off there various different types of british beers from what i can remember and above the bar they had placemats all of which had 1970s scenes from cardiff on them hand painted <laughs> i don't remember being that drunk I was kind of thinking, Hang on a it's just the last thing i expected to see so apparently what we do export is kind of slightly naff <laughs> kind of panoramic views of cardiff for slightly dingy attic clubs in seoul but one thing that i do find that people know so wherever i've been on a trip i've been away with work to far east and i've been away traveling to places like australia you mentioned wales and the one thing that people tend to know is sport yeah Sport and singing. Sport, singing, and the Millennium Stadium now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Principality Stadium now. I can't call it the Principality Stadium any more than I can call the Seven Bridge the Prince Charles Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Seven Bridge, nothing to do with that Anglo-German who claims to be the Prince of Wales. That's <laughs> nonsense. Tom Jones is the Prince of Wales, or Mike Peters from the Alarm. Maybe we need to scale up from beer mats with images of Cardiff on them. We need to work on things. Okay, let's wrap this up. I mentioned Welsh circuits. There are only three circuits in Wales that I'm aware of that are active. One is Pembry near Llanelli in South Wales, where they used to have Formula One testing back in the 90s senate and prost famously tested there that's how cool that circuit was and i've actually driven my car around that circuit it's a lovely setting but they have an advantage there i mean there's no competitive racing at the moment they have track days and they have experiences and there is a sort of provisional calendar but it remains to be seen whether any of those races go ahead given the covid situation at the moment but what they do have as an advantage there because of the position of pembury which is out on the coast you can run cars 24 hours a day so you could have proper endurance races there without upsetting any neighbors with the noise i mean that's an advantage why don't we capitalize on that and have the pembry 24 hours competing with le mans there 
Well, I was going to say, if you've been there, can you imagine the traffic getting to it? Oh, that is an issue. Yeah, yeah. it's right on the end it's of a little tiny a road, road, isn't it? Yeah. It is a lovely circuit. I mean, I've been there to watch drift events, but I've never actually driven around it. I have been there a couple of times, but it's, it's a lovely spot. Isn't it? That's an interesting advantage, being able to do that 24-hour running. But didn't run anything last year, did they? I mean, I feel really sorry for smallish businesses like that who are, at the moment, faced with kind of blanket bans on who can get together. Yep. I can't think of many circuits where you could socially distance better than Pembroke. Yeah, lots so of space. Everything there, aren't you? Yeah. So. You can have people watching on boats in the Caerverdin Bay. What's Caerverdin in English? Um, Carmarthen Bay, isn't it? You could have people watching from there. That would do it. So the other two circuits, there's a circuit I've never been to, Sandau in the Vale of Glamorgan, which is sort of family-owned. But I don't know how active that is. It's only a little circuit. Have you been there? Yeah, I've been there again for drift events in the past. And again, it's a good circuit. It's a relatively small one, as there are lots of these kind of little circuits all over the place in the UK. And generally speaking, as I say, they've done club-level track days and drift days and things like that. And probably getting hit harder than most at the moment because they just don't have the facilities to accommodate COVID, basically. Yeah, the most famous circuit in Wales, which still seems to appear on television pretty much every week in almost every episode of Fifth Gear or Top Gear. Mm. And that's what in Welsh is known as Track Morn yeah. in English, Anglesey Circuit. And again, that is a beautiful setting out on the southwestern tip of Morn of Anglesey, right in the Irish Sea. It's glorious. I've never been there. Even as a North Walian, I've never been there. I'm ashamed to say that. No, I've only been to Anglesey once and I haven't been to the circuit. It's on the list. It's somewhere where I'd love to go. And yeah, again, it's one of those places where it figures in quite a lot of development programs for some of the world's best known automotive nameplates. Uh have uh, had chassis work done there. So there's a lot to quietly be quite proud of in terms of Wales and motorsport and automotive development, I think. It doesn't quite get sung as, as highly as it should do, I think. Well, I don't think this has been a comprehensive list of everything that we do in Wales, but I hope that we've highlighted some of those things that you've just described, Alex. But Arguably our greatest success in Welsh motorsport at the moment is a lad from Dolgetley, North Wales, whose dad was a rally driver. And this lad is so good, he finished second in the World Rally Championship last year and second at the Monte Carlo Rally just last month. Talking about Elvin Evans, son of Gwyndav Evans. He's a real talent and stands a chance of actually winning the World Rally Championship this year, doesn't he? And finishing on an optimistic note. I would love to see that happen. And I've met him a few years ago when he was kind of on the way up. And him and his dad, both absolutely lovely, really sort of down to earth. As actually, to be honest, as rally drivers tend to be, there doesn't seem to be quite the same sort of level of ego in rally driving as there is in some other most sports. We're a funny country in terms of what we produce rally driver-wise. We seem to be a little bit like some of the Scandinavian countries as well, where I don't know what it is about kind of sparsely populated countries with a a lot of countryside but they're very good at producing very talented rally drivers that seems to be one of these areas whether it's the fact these guys grow up getting to know some excellent local roads or not i don't know but yeah we seem to be very good at producing rally drivers disproportionately so i'd say for our population that adds up the first motorsport i remember seeing as a kid in north wales in person was rallying i remember going to what was the rac rally which used to happen in deeside and in the codwen forest mm. where you know so many drivers including tom price learned to drive out in codwen you know so you're right maybe we shouldn't spend too much energy thinking about getting welsh drivers into formula one and just support the success that we have in rallying elvin evans for the championship that's what i 
shake. Absolutely. And Wales Rally GB to come back as soon as possible, I think, as well. Yeah, we're missing a round this year, aren't we? Will it be back next year? What's the latest thinking on that? There's nothing confirmed yet, as far as I know, but yeah, I think it won't be long before it comes back. Rallying very much has a home here, although I suppose it also has a home in Ireland and Scotland as well. They're very keen on it. Up there, you know, a lot of homegrown rallying talent up in Scotland and on both sides of the Irish border. So I guess we've got our work cut out, making sure that it comes back here. Sooner rather than later, I've been to a couple of Wales Rally GB events in Llandidno over the last few years, and it's been phenomenal. It's a huge success, and let's have more success for Wales. Alex Grant, Diolchen Vaurian, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us on the programme. No problem. Thanks for having me on. And we'll have you back again, and I think we'll talk about stuff outside of Wales next time. Sounds good. And in the meantime, St. David's Day on March the 1st, how are you going to be celebrating? It looks like I'm going to be sending my kids back to school, which I have to say, after a couple of months of being stuck at home, trying to do homeschooling and balance that with a very busy freelance career, is something I'm looking forward to, and the kids, I hope, will be looking forward to as well. So we're spending next weekend doing a steadboard baking, and yeah, the kids are back in school this week and next week, so... Steadvard baking, traditional Welsh activities. That's fantastic. Yeah, I feel homesick here. Am I? <laughs> you are doing. Listen, my house is actually painted red, white, and green. I'm overcompensating for not actually being in Wales. My children have got Welsh middle names. You know, I'm making a programme about Welsh motorsports. You've got to compensate somehow. Listen, we're way over time. Alex, it's been an extraordinary pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. And happy St. David's Day. Is that the right one? That's right, yeah, you too. Thank you very much. <laughs> Results. Glad I remembered something from my GCSE Welsh. Brilliant. Hey, listen, Welsh, you don't have to be a Welsh speaker to be Welsh. It's not compulsory. It's just part of the spectrum of Welshness. Yeah. That's it. You've been listening to Gareth Jones on Speed. He was Alex Grant. Say goodbye, Alex. Goodbye. And I was Gareth Jones. See ya and happy St. David's Day, everybody. Send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. It doesn't sound right when the silence, no noise at all, no noise at all. I went to hear practice. It's silver stone couldn't be worse. No hysteria, no drama. The cursed silence of the curse. No noise at all. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!